29, the other poems 1820, is the one with which the reader should begin his acquaintance with this master of English verse. It has only two subjects, Greek mythology and medieval romance. Hyperion is a magnificent fragment, suggesting the first arch of a cathedral that was never finished. Its theme is the overthrow of the Titans by the young sun god Apollo, realizing his own immaturity and lack of knowledge. Keats laid aside this work, and only the pleadings of his publisher induced him to print the fragment with his completed poems. Throughout this last volume, and especially in Hyperion, the influence of Milton is apparent, while Spencer is more frequently suggested in reading Endymion, of the longer poems in the volume. Lamia is the most suggestive. It is the story of a beautiful enchantress, who turns from a serpent into a glorious woman and fills every human sense with delight, until, as a result of the foolish philosophy of old Apollonius, she vanishes forever from her lover's sight. The Eve of St. Agnes, the most perfect of Keats's medieval poems, is not a story after the manner of the metrical romances, but rather a vivid painting of a romantic mood, such as comes to all men, at times, to glorify a work of a world, like all the work of Keats and Shelley, it has an element of unreality, and when we read at the end, and they are gone, I, ages long ago these lovers fled away into the storm, it is as if we were awaking from a dream which is the only possible ending to all of Keats's Greek and medieval fancies. We are to remember, however, that no beautiful thing, though it be intangible as a dream, can enter a man's life and leave him quite the same afterwards. Keats's own word is here suggestive. The imagination, he said, may be likened to Adam's dream, he awoke and found it true. It is by his short poems that Keats is known to the majority of present-day readers. Among these exquisite shorter poems we mention only the four odes, on a Grecian urn, to a nightingale, to autumn, and to Psyche. These are like an invitation to a feast, one who reads them will hardly be satisfied until he knows more of such delightful poetry. Those who study only the ode to a nightingale may find four things, a love of sensuous beauty, a touch of pessimism, a purely pagan conception of nature, and a strong individualism which are characteristic of this last of the romantic poets, as Wordsworth's work is too often marred by the moralizer, and Byron's by the demagogue, and Shelley's by the reformer, so Keats's work suffers by the opposite extreme of aloofness from every human interest, so much so, that he is often accused of being indifferent to humanity, his work is also criticized as being too effeminate for ordinary readers, three things should be remembered in this connection, first, that Keats sought to express beauty for its own sake, that beauty is as essential to normal humanity as is government or law, and that the higher man climbs in civilization the more imperative becomes his need of beauty as a reward for his labors. Second, that Keats's letters are as much an indication of the man as is his poetry, and in his letters, with their human sympathy, their eager interest in social problems, their humor, and their keen insight into life, there is no trace of effeminacy but rather every indication of a strong and noble manhood. The third thing to remember is that all Keats's work was done in three or four years, with small preparation, and that, dying at twenty-five, he left us a body of poetry which will always be one of our most cherished possessions. He is often compared with the marvelous boy, Chatterton, whom he greatly admired, and to whose memory he dedicated his endymion, but though both died young, Chatterton was but a child. While Keats was in all respects a man, it is idle to prophesy what he might have done, 
had he been granted a Tennyson's long life and scholarly training. At 25 his work was as mature as was Tennyson's at 50, though the maturity suggests the too rapid growth of a tropical plant which under the warm rains and the flood of sunlight leaps into life, grows, blooms in a day, and dies. As we have stated, Keats's work was bitterly and unjustly condemned by the critics of his day. He belonged to what was derisively called the Cockney School of Poetry, of which Lee Hunt was chief, and Proctor and Beddoes were fellow workmen, not even from Wordsworth and Byron, who were ready enough to recommend far less gifted writers, did Keats receive the slightest encouragement, like young Lokinvar, he wrote all unarmed and he wrote all alone, Shelley, with his sincerity and generosity, was the first to recognize the young genius, and in his novel Adonai's written, Alas, like most of our tributes, when the subject of our praise is dead he spoke the first true word of appreciation, and placed Keats, where he unquestionably belongs, among our greatest poets, the fame denied him in his sad life was granted freely after his death, most fitly does he close the list of poets of the Romantic Revival, because in many respects he was the best workman of them all, he seems to have studied words more carefully than did his contemporaries. And so his poetic expression, or the harmony of word and thought, is generally more perfect than theirs. More than any other he lived for poetry, as the noblest of the arts. More than any other he emphasized beauty, because to him, as shown by his Grecian urn, beauty and truth were one and inseparable. And he enriched the whole romantic movement by adding to its interest in common life the spirit, rather than the letter, of the classics and of Elizabethan poetry. For these reasons Keats Island like Spencer, a poet's poet, his work profoundly influenced Tennyson and, indeed, most of the poets of the present era, i.i., prose writers of the Romantic period aside from the splendid work of the novel writers Walter Scott, whom we have considered, and Jane Austen, to whom we shall presently return the early 19th century is remarkable for the development of a new and valuable type of critical prose writing. If we accept the isolated work of Dryden and of Addison, it is safe to say that literary criticism, in its modern sense, was hardly known in England until about the year 1825. Such criticism as existed seems to us now to have been largely the result of personal opinion or prejudice. Indeed we could hardly expect anything else before some systematic study of our literature as a whole had been attempted. In one age a poem was called good or bad according as it followed or ran counter to so-called classic rules, in another we have the dogmatism of Dr. Johnson, in a third the personal judgment of Lockhart and the editors of the Edinburgh Review and the Quarterly, who so violently abused Keats and the late poets in the name of criticism. Early in the 19th century there arose a new school of criticism which was guided by knowledge of literature, on the one hand, and by what one might call the fear of God on the other. The latter element showed itself in a profound human sympathy, the essence of the Romantic movement, and its importance was summed up by De Quincey when he said, Not to sympathize is not to understand. These new critics, with abundant reverence for past masters, could still lay aside the dogmatism and prejudice which marked Johnson and the magazine editors, and read sympathetically the work of a new author, with the sole idea of finding what he had contributed, or tried to contribute to the magnificent total of our literature, Coleridge, Hunt, Hazlitt, Lamb, and De Quincey were the leaders in this new and immensely important development, and we must not forget the importance of the new periodicals, like the London Magazine, founded in 1820, in which Lamb, De Quincey, 
and Carlyle found their first real encouragement. Of Coleridge's biographical literary and his lectures on Shakespeare we have already spoken. Lee Hunt 1784-1859 wrote continuously for more than 30 years, as editor and essayist, and his chief object seems to have been to make good literature known and appreciated. William Hazlitt 1778-1830, in a long series of lectures and essays, treated all reading as a kind of romantic journey into new and pleasant countries, to his work largely, with that of Lamb, was to the new interest in Elizabethan literature which so strongly influenced Keats's last and best volume of poetry, for those interested in the art of criticism, and in the appreciation of literature, both Hunt and Hesley will well repay study, but we must pass over their work to consider the larger literary interest of Lamb and De Quincey, who were not simply critics of other men's labor, but who also produced some delightful work of their own, which the world has carefully put away among the things worthy to be remembered. Charles Lamb 1775-1834 In Lamb and Wordsworth we have two widely different views of the Romantic movement, one shows the influence of nature and solitude, the other of society. Lamb was a lifelong friend of Coleridge, and an admirer and defender of the poetic creed of Wordsworth, but while the latter lived apart from men, content with nature and with reading an occasional moral lesson to society, Lamb was born and lived in the midst of the London streets, the city crowd with its pleasures and occupations, its endless little comedies and tragedies, alone interested him, according to his own account, when he paused in the crowded street tears would spring to his eyes, tears of pure pleasure at the abundance of so much good life, and when he wrote, he simply interpreted that crowded human life of joy and sorrow, as Wordsworth interpreted the woods and waters, without any desire to change or to reform them, he has given us the best pictures we possess of Coleridge, Hazlitt, Landor, Hood, Cowden Clark, and many more of the interesting men and women of his age, and it is due to his insight and sympathy that the life of those far-off days seems almost as real to us as if we ourselves remembered it. Of all our English essayists he is the most lovable, partly because of his delicate, old-fashioned style and humor, but more because of that cheery and heroic struggle against misfortune which shines like a subdued light in all his writings. Life. In the very heart of London there is a curious, old-fashioned place known as the Temple, an enormous, rambling, apparently forgotten structure, dusty and still, in the midst of the endless roar of the city streets. Originally it was a chapter house of the Knights Templars, and so suggests to us the spirit of the Crusades and of the Middle Ages, but now the building is given over almost entirely to the offices and lodgings of London lawyers. It is this queer old place which, more than all others, is associated with the name of Charles Lamb. I was born, he says, and passed the first seven years of my life in the temple. Its gardens, its halls, its fountain, its river, these are my oldest recollections. He was the son of a poor clerk, or rather a servant, of one of the barristers, and was the youngest of seven children, only three of whom survived infancy. Of these three, John, the elder, was apparently a selfish creature who took no part in the heroic struggle of his brother and sister. At seven years, Charles was sent to the famous Blue Coat Charity School of Christ's Hospital. Here he remained seven years, and here he formed his lifelong friendship for another poor, neglected boy, whom the world remembers as Coleridge. When only fourteen years old, Lamb left the charity school and was soon at work as a clerk in the South Sea House. 
Two years later he became a clerk in the famous India House, where he worked steadily for 33 years, with the exception of six weeks, in the winter of 1795-1796, spent within the walls of an asylum, in 1796 Lamb's sister Mary, who was as talented and remarkable as Lamb himself, went violently insane and killed her own mother, for a long time after this appalling tragedy she was in an asylum at Hoxton, then Lamb, in 1797, brought her to his own little house, and for the remainder of his life cared for her with a tenderness and devotion which furnishes one of the most beautiful pages in our literary history, at times the malady would return to Mary, giving sure warning of its terrible approach, and then brother and sister might be seen walking silently, hand in hand, to the gates of the asylum, their cheeks wet with tears, one must remember this as well as Lamb's humble lodgings and the drudgery of his daily work in the big commercial house. If he would appreciate the pathos of the old familiar faces, or the heroism which shines through the most human and the most delightful essays in our language, when Lamb was fifty years of age the East India Company, led partly by his literary fame following his first essays of Ilya, and partly by his thirty-three years of faithful service, granted him a comfortable pension, and happy as a boy turned loose from school he left India House forever to give himself up to literary work. He wrote to Wordsworth, in April, 1825, I came home forever on Tuesday of last week it was like passing from life into eternity. Curiously enough Lamb seems to lose power after his release from drudgery, and his last essays, published in 1833, lack something of the grace and charm of his earlier work. He died at Edmonton in 1834, and his gifted sister Mary sank rapidly into the gulf from which his strength and gentleness had so long held her back. No literary man was ever more loved and honored by a rare circle of friends, and all who knew him bear witness to the simplicity and goodness which any reader may find for himself between the lines of his essays. Works. The works of Lamb divide themselves naturally into three periods. First, there are his early literary efforts including the poems signed, C.L., in Coleridge's poems on various subjects 1796, his romance Rosamund Gray 1798, his poetical drama John Woodville 1802, and various other amateur works in prose and poetry. This period comes to an end in 1803, when he gave up his newspaper work, especially the contribution of six jokes, puns, and squibs daily to the Morning Post at sixpence apiece. The second period was given largely to literary criticism, and the tales from Shakespeare 1807 written by Charles and Mary Lamb, the former reproducing the tragedies, and the latter the comedies may be regarded as his first successful literary venture. The book was written primarily for children, but so thoroughly had brother and sister steeped themselves in the literature of the Elizabethan period that young and old alike were delighted with this new version of Shakespeare's stories and the tales are still regarded as the best of their kind in our literature. In 1808 appeared his Specimens of English Dramatic Poets Contemporary with Shakespeare. This carried out the splendid critical work of Coleridge, and was the most noticeable influence in developing the poetic qualities of Keats, as shown in his last volume. The third period includes Lamb's Criticisms of Life, which are gathered together in his Essays of Ilya 1823, and his last Essays of Ilya which were published ten years later. These famous essays began in 1820 with the appearance of the New London Magazine and were continued for many years. Such subjects as the Dissertation on Roast Pig, Old China, Praise of Chimney Sweepers, 
imperfect sympathies, a chapter on ears, Mrs. Battle's opinions on whist, Macquarie and, Grace before meat, dream children, and many others being chosen apparently at random, but all leading to a delightful interpretation of the life of London, as it appeared to a quiet little man who walked and noticed through its crowded streets, in the first and last essays which we have mentioned, dissertation on roast pig and dream children, we have the extremes of lamb's humor and pathos, the style of all these essays is gentle, old-fashioned, irresistibly attractive, Lamb was especially fond of old writers and borrowed unconsciously from the style of Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy and from Brown's Religio Medici and from the early English dramatists. But this style had become a part of Lamb by long reading, and he was apparently unable to express his new thought without using their old quaint expressions. Though these essays are all criticisms or appreciations of the life of his age, they are all intensely personal. In other words, They are an excellent picture of Lamb and of humanity, without a trace of vanity or self-assertion. Lamb begins with himself, with some purely personal mood or experience, and from this he leads the reader to see life and literature as he sought it. It is this wonderful combination of personal and universal interests, together with Lamb's rare old style and quaint humor, which make the essays remarkable. They continue the best tradition of Addison and Steele, our first great essayists, but their sympathies are broader and deeper, and their humor more delicious than any which preceded them. Thomas D. Quincy 1785-1859 In D. Quincy the romantic element is even more strongly developed than in Lamb, not only in his critical work, but also in his erratic and imaginative life. He was profoundly educated, even more so than Coleridge, and was one of the keenest intellects of the age yet his wonderful intellect seems always subordinate to his passion for dreaming. Like Lamb, he was a friend and associate of the late poets, making his headquarters in Wordsworth's old cottage at Grasmere for nearly twenty years. Here the resemblance ceases, and a marked contrast begins. As a man, Lamb is the most human and lovable of all our essayists, while De Quincey is the most uncanny and incomprehensible. Lamb's modest works breathe the two essential qualities of sympathy and humor, the greater number of De Quincey's essays, while possessing more or less of both these qualities, are characterized chiefly by their brilliant style. Life, as seen through De Quincey's eyes, is nebulous and chaotic, and there is a suspicion of the fabulous in all that he wrote. Even in the revolt of the Tartars the romantic element is uppermost, and in much of De Quincey's prose the element of unreality is more noticeable than in Shelley's poetry, of his subject matter, his facts, ideas, and criticisms, we are generally suspicious, but of his style, sometimes stately and sometimes headlong, now gorgeous as an oriental dream, now musical as Keats's and Dimidon, and always, even in the most violent contrasts, showing a harmony between the idea and the expression such as no other English writer, with the possible exception of Newman, has ever rivaled, say what you will of the marvelous brilliancy of De Quincey's style, you have still only half expressed the truth. It is the style alone which makes these essays immortal. Life. De Quincey was born in Manchester in 1785. In neither his father, who was a prosperous merchant, nor his mother, who was a quiet, and sympathetic woman, do we see any suggestion of the son's almost uncanny genius. As a child he was given to dreams, more vivid and intense but less beautiful than those of the young Blake to whom he bears a strong resemblance. In the grammar school at Bath he displayed astonishing ability, and acquired Greek and Latin with a rapidity that frightened his slow tutors. 
at fifteen he not only read Greek, but spoke it fluently, and one of his astounded teachers remarked, that boy could harangue an Athenian mob better than you or I could address an English one, from the grammar school at Manchester, whither he was sent in 1800, he soon ran away, finding the instruction far below his abilities, and the rough life absolutely intolerable to his sensitive nature, an uncle, just home from India, interceded for the boy lest he be sent back to the school, which he hated, and with an allowance of a guinea a week he started a career of vagrancy, much like that of Goldsmith, living on the open hills, in the huts of shepherds and charcoal burners, in the tents of gypsies, wherever fancy led him, his fear of the Manchester school finally led him to run away to London, where, without money or friends, his life was even more extraordinary than his gypsy wanderings. The details of this vagrancy are best learned in his Confessions of an English Opium Eater, where we meet not simply the facts of his life, but also the confusion of dreams and fancies in the midst of which he wandered like a man lost on the mountains, with storm clouds under his feet hiding the familiar earth. After a year of vagrancy and starvation he was found by his family and allowed to go to Oxford, where his career was marked by the most brilliant and erratic scholarship, when ready for a degree. In 1807, he passed his written tests successfully, but felt a sudden terror at the thought of the oral examination and disappeared from the university, never to return. It was in Oxford that De Quincey began the use of opium, to relieve the pains of neuralgia, and the habit increased until he was an almost hopeless slave to the drug. Only his extraordinary willpower enabled him to break away from the habit, after some 30 years of misery. Some peculiarity of his delicate constitution enabled De Quincey to take enormous quantities of opium, enough to kill several ordinary men, and it was largely opium, working upon a sensitive imagination, which produced his gorgeous dreams, broken by intervals of weakness and profound depression. For twenty years he resided at Grassmere in the companionship of the late poets, and here, led by the loss of his small fortune, he began to write, with the idea of supporting his family. In 1821 he published his first famous work, The Confessions of an English Opium Eater, and for nearly 40 years afterwards he wrote industriously, contributing to various magazines an astonishing number of essays on a great variety of subjects, without thought of literary fame. He contributed these articles anonymously, but fortunately, in 1853, he began to collect his own works, and the last of 14 volumes was published just after his death. In 1830, led by his connection with Blackwood's magazine, to which he was the chief contributor, De Quincey removed with his family to Edinburgh, where his erratic genius and his singularly childlike ways produced enough amusing anecdotes to fill a volume. He would take a room in some place unknown to his friends and family, would live in it for a few years, until he had filled it, even to the bathtub, with books and with his own chaotic manuscripts, allowing no one to enter or disturb his den. And then, when the place became too crowded, he would lock the door and go away and take another lodging, where he repeated the same extraordinary performance. He died in Edinburgh in 1859. Like Lamb, he was a small, boyish figure, gentle, and elaborately courteous, though excessively shy, and escaping as often as possible to solitude. He was nevertheless fond of society and his wide knowledge and vivid imagination made his conversations almost as prized as those of his friend Coleridge. Works. De Quincey's works may be divided into two general classes. The first includes his numerous critical articles, 
and the second his autobiographical sketches, all his works, it must be remembered, were contributed to various magazines, and were hastily collected just before his death, hence the general impression of chaos which we get from reading them. From a literary viewpoint the most illuminating of De Quincey's critical works is his literary reminiscences. This contains brilliant appreciations of Wordsworth, Coleridge, Lamb, Shelley, Keats, Hazlitt, and Landor, as well as some interesting studies of the literary figures of the age preceding. Among the best of his brilliant critical essays are on the knocking at the gate in Macbeth 1823, which is admirably suited to show the man's critical genius and murder considered as one of the fine arts 1827, which reveals his grotesque humor over suggestive critical works. If one must choose among such a multitude, are his letters to a young man 1823, Joan of Arc 1847, The Revolt of the Tartars 1840, and The English Mail Coach 1849. In the last-named essay The Dream Fugue is one of the most imaginative of all his curious works. Of De Quincey's autobiographical sketches the best known is his Confessions of an English Opium Eater 1821. This is only partly a record of opium dreams, and its chief interest lies in glimpses it gives us of De Quincey's own life and wanderings. This should be followed by Suspiria de Profundis 1845, which is chiefly a record of gloomy and terrible dreams produced by opiates. The most interesting parts of his Suspiria, showing De Quincey's marvelous insight into dreams are those in which we are brought face to face with the strange feminine creations, Lavanna, Madonna, Our Lady of Sighs, and Our Lady of Darkness, a series of nearly 30 articles which he collected in 1853, called autobiographic sketches, completes the revelation of the author's own life. Among his miscellaneous works may be mentioned, in order to show his wide range of subjects, Klosterheim, a novel, Logic of Political Economy, the essays on style and rhetoric, philosophy of Herodotus, and his articles on Goethe, Pope, Schiller, and Shakespeare which he contributed to the Encyclopedia Britannica. De Quincey's style is a revelation of the beauty of the English language, and it profoundly influenced Ruskin and other prose writers of the Victorian age. It has two chief faults, diffuseness, which continually leads De Quincey away from his object, and triviality which often makes him halt in the midst of a marvelous paragraph to make some light jest or witticism that has some humor but no mirth in it. Notwithstanding these faults, De Quincey's prose is still among the few supreme examples of style in our language. Though he was profoundly influenced by the 17th century writers, he attempted definitely to create a new style which should combine the best elements of prose and poetry. In consequence, his prose works are often, like those of Milton, more imaginative and melodious than much of our poetry. He has been well called, the psychologist of style, and as such his works will never be popular, but to the few who can appreciate him he will always be an inspiration to better writing. One has a deeper respect for our English language and literature after reading him. Secondary writers of Romanticism. One has only to glance back over the authors we have been studying Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, Myron, Shelley, Keats. Scott, Lamb, De Quincey to realize the great change which swept over the life and literature of England in a single half-century, under two influences which we now know as the French Revolution in history and the Romantic movement in literature. In life men had rebelled against the too strict authority of state and society, in literature they rebelled even more vigorously against the bonds of classicism. 
which had sternly repressed a writer's ambition to follow his own ideals and to express them in his own way. Naturally such an age of revolution was essentially poetic, only the Elizabethan age surpasses it in this respect, and it produced a large number of minor writers, who followed more or less closely the example of its great leaders. Among novelists we have Jane Austen, Frances Burney, Maria Edgeworth, Jane Porter, and Susan Ferrier, all women, be it noted, among the poets, Campbell, Moore, Hogg, Beatrix Shepherd, Mrs. Hemmins, Heber, Keeble, Hood, and Ingoldsby, Richard Barham, and among miscellaneous writers, Sidney Smith, Christopher North, John Wilson, Chalmers, Lockhart, Lee Hunt, Hazlitt, Hallam, and Landor. Here is an astonishing variety of writers, and to consider all their claims to remembrance would of itself require a volume, though these are generally classed as secondary writers. Much of their work has claims to popularity, and some of it to permanence. Moore's Irish Melodies, Camel's Lyrics, Keeble's Christian Year, and Jane Porter's Thaddeus of Warsaw and Scottish Chiefs have still a multitude of readers. Where Keats, Lamb, and De Quincey are prized only by the cultured few, and Hallam's historical and critical works are perhaps better known than those of Gibbon, who nevertheless occupies a larger place in our literature. Among all these writers we choose only two, Jane Austen and Walter Savage Landor, whose works indicate a period of transition from the Romantic to the Victorian age. Jane Austen 1775-1817 We have so lately rediscovered the charm and genius of this gifted young woman that she seems to be a novelist of yesterday, rather than the contemporary of Wordsworth and Coleridge, and few even of her readers realize that she did for the English novel precisely what the late poets did for English poetry. She refined and simplified it, making it a true reflection of English life. Like the late poets, she met with scanty encouragement in her own generation. Her greatest novel, Pride and Prejudice, was finished in 1797, a year before the appearance of the famous lyrical ballads of Wordsworth and Coleridge, but while the latter book was published and found a few appreciative readers, the manuscript of this wonderful novel went begging for 16 years before it found a publisher. As Wordsworth began with the deliberate purpose of making poetry natural and truthful, so Miss Austen appears to have begun writing with the idea of presenting the life of English country society exactly as it was, in opposition to the romantic extravagance of Mrs. Radcliffe and her school. But there was this difference, that Miss Austen had in large measure the saving gift of humor, which Wordsworth sadly lacked. Maria Edgeworth, at the same time, set a sane and excellent example in her tales of Irish life. The Absentee and Castle Rackrent and Miss Austen followed up the advantage with at least six works, which have grown steadily in value until we place them gladly in the first rank of our novels of common life. It is not simply for her exquisite charm, therefore, that we admire her, but also for her influence in bringing our novels back to their true place as an expression of human life. It is due partly, at least, to her influence that a multitude of readers were ready to appreciate Mrs. Gaskell's Cranford and the powerful and enduring work of George Eliot, Life. Jane Austen's life gives little opportunity for the biographer, unless, perchance, he has something of her own power to show the beauty and charm of commonplace things. She was the seventh child of Ref. George Austen, rector of Steventon, and was born in the parsonage of the village in 1775. With her sisters she was educated at home, and passed her life very quietly, cheerfully 
in the doing of small domestic duties, to which love lent the magic lamp that makes all things beautiful. She began to write at an early age, and seems to have done her work on a little table in the family sitting room.